In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so uh, recently we've been looking at the weapons of God by which we may use to defeat the enemy in the spiritual battle that all of us experience in life. Actually, it's the enemies. What are the three enemies of the Christian? Who knows that? Everybody should be able to say it right off the top of your head. The three enemies of the Christian are the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. You've got to contend with those every day of your life if you are going to live a holy life, which is what we're going to be talking about here. Okay, so these weapons allow us to defeat the enemy in our lives as we are told in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. That tells us that the weapons are, uh, we, though we live in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not what? Carnal. They're not fleshly weapons. Because the battle is in the spiritual realm. It's in your mind, first of all. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. The enemy seeks to build up strongholds in our lives. And he spent a lifetime trying to build those up. But we can tear them down by the weapons of God. Okay, now the weapons we've looked at in this series are such things as the Word of God, prayer in the Spirit, the weapon of fasting. Fasting is a very powerful weapon. Uh, the name of Jesus and the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. And the final weapon we are looking at right now is that of praise. And the theme verse for this series on praise is, Let the high praises be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. I've told you that there's two kinds of praise. First of all, there's thanksgiving, where we thank God for what He has done in our lives, what He is doing in the present, and what He will do. And then there's the second one, which I term adoration. And this is where we uh, praise God for who He is. And to do this, you know, I have been going through His attributes, what I call are the attributes. That is His love. God is love. His holiness. God is holy. Justice. God is just. God is truth, His truthfulness, His eternity of being. God has always existed, and He will exist into eternity future. We had a beginning, but we will all exist into eternity future. So we either spend it with God or eternally separated from Him. The choice is ours. And then there's the, what I term the omni-attributes of God. Omni meaning all. We, he is omnipotent. That is, He is all-powerful. 
He is omnipresent, that is, he is present everywhere. That means he's right here in this room listening to everything we say, also to what we uh, are thinking too. He can read our thoughts. And then there's the omniscience. God is all-knowing. And we're going to look at these attributes more in later messages. Now, I spent three Sundays talking about the first attribute, which is God is love. And I looked at it from the standpoint of three people. Those people are the Apostle John, as outlined in 1 John, particularly chapter 4, which mentions the word love for literally dozens of times and defines it says that God is love, and then he says here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfactory payment for our sins. We also looked at it from uh, Paul. Paul talks about love being the first manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit, In Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. And then he went on in his famous love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And he defines what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. Also the negative aspects. Love is not envious. It's not proud or boastful. So on and so forth. And finally I looked at the Lord Jesus Christ and I went through... Uh, the upper room discourse, which is John chapters 13 through 17, and found out what Jesus told his disciples in his farewell address to them. Last week I started with holiness, and we're going to continue on with that too. Now the main scripture that I shared with you last week was uh, this, you know, this is what the uh, prophet Isaiah had to say about the holiness of God. You know, God gave him a vision. And he was transported to the throne room of God. The story behind that passage, it opens up with uh, uh, that uh, he states that in the year King Uzziah died. Now, King Uzziah was a good king. The nation of Judah had good kings and bad kings throughout their history. And Isaiah is thinking, oh no, you know, King Uzziah, a good king, has died now. Uh, who, who's going to replace him? You know, are we going to get a good king or are we going to lapse into a bad king and start following after these pagan gods and goddesses that are worshipped by the uh, people, the pagan people of the land of Canaan? So he was no doubt apprehensive about things and he began to seek God. And God, what does God do? He gives him, him this vision. And he sees, he feels himself transported into the throne room of God. So he sees that it doesn't matter who's on the throne there in the nation of Judah. What's really important is that God is on the throne. How many can say amen to that? Everybody say, God is on the throne. No matter how bad things get here in the, this world, this 
this drunken world that we live in, God is still on the throne. Hallelujah. Praise God. Okay. Isaiah sees far more than uh, God sitting there on the throne. He sees the seraphim. Who are the seraphim? The seraphim are a type of angel and they're flying around the, the, the throne of God. And what are the seraphim saying? They are crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Then upon, you know, uh, seeing the holiness of God, witnessing the holiness of God is cried out by the angels. Suddenly Isaiah sees himself in all of his sinfulness. And he cries out, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the Lord of hosts, you know, and, uh, you know, I am undone. You know, I'm going to be struck dead. He saw the holiness and the glory of God. Now, why does he say I'm a man of unclean lips? What does that mean? Well, it means this. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. So the evil, and Jesus has said this, you know, it's not the, what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of him. Because in the, the heart, there's all of this sin and uncleanness. Jeremiah wrote that the heart is deceitful above all else and incurably sick. And so this defilement in our hearts comes out of our mouths. Think of all the sin that has been perpetrated because of the words of our mouth. I was watching on uh, uh, TV this last week the story of the what was called the final solution. The final solution was over there in Germany. They hated the Jews. And they got together and had this big conference. And in 90 minutes, they hashed out what they were going to do about the Jewish problem. as they saw it. And they were just going to wipe them out. So the words of their mouth spoke for death. And then it began to be manifest. And six million Jews there in Europe were murdered by these uh, Nazi uh, criminals. But it was out of their hearts. The, heart, the hate was already there in their, their hearts. And then it manifested in what they had to say. So that's what it means by, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of the uh, people of unclean lips. We're all defiled. And as I just quoted Jesus, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. How many sins have been perpetuated through our words? Amen? Hallelujah. <clears throat> so, Isaiah saw God in all of his holiness, and he became acutely aware of his own sinfulness. And he said, I'm undone. I'm about ready to be struck dead. I've seen the, uh, uh, the Lord, Jehovah God, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the angels realized his predicament. He flew over to the 
altar and with a pair of tongs took one of the coals from the altar there in the throne room of God and touched Isaiah's lips and said, Behold, this has touched your unclean lips. You are now pure. And the thing that I was trying to to emphasize uh, there is that no matter how godly we may appear to other people, there's always going to be sin in our lives. And this sin must be purged by God. You can't purge it yourself through your good works. You have to have God provide the satisfactory atonement there, just like the angel had to do this for Isaiah. No doubt directed by God. Now, uh, as I was preparing last night to uh, the message for today, it occurred to me that there's a similar vision about that that was uh, uh, related by the Apostle John. And he wrote this in uh, Revelation chapter 4, verses 6 through 9. It says, Before the throne, that is the throne room of God, see, he too felt himself transported to the throne room of God. Before the throne of God, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne, around the throne, were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had the face of a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, you know, the, the seraphim had six wings too, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him, it sits on the throne and lives uh, forever. So, my conclusion is from these two visions, holiness is one attribute that God wants man to be aware of. Now, I also talked last week about what does holy exactly mean. You know, usually when we speak of holy, we talk, think of purity. This is, the only, this is only part of the meaning, the purity of God. Holy in the New Testament is the Greek word hagios, which means to be set apart. So when we say that God is holy as his attribute, we mean that he is set apart. That is, he is holy, H-W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, separate, holy other, completely separate from his creation, which is defiled by sin. Now, you know, Paul even talks about the defilement of uh, creation in uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 22. For we know that whole, the whole creation groans and travails in pain until now, until God reconciles the world to himself. Now, the world system is still separate from him, but it, it's looking, also looking forward to the future when, God, when Jesus will return and reconcile all things, including the world, to himself. So, what it means is the Judeo-Christian religion is completely, it's got a completely different concept of God than Eastern religions. 
Because Eastern religions believe in pantheism. Everything is God. You know, the stars are God. The uh, earth is God. Uh, this pulpit is God. You are God. I am God. This is what the Eastern religions believe. That's completely different than the Judeo-Christian concept of God being holy, meaning God is completely separate or set apart from his defiled creation. Uh, his, well, cre his creation wasn't defiled until what? What defiled his creation? The fall of man, right? Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. And then God expelled them from the Garden of Eden. And he said, you know, you have got to be tillers of the soil. And thorns and thistles, you know, are going to be uh, a crop that you, uh, <clears throat> that you generate. Okay? So, now, related to the word holy is to sanctify or to be sanctified. It's the same root word in the Greek language. Once again, it means to set apart. Set apart certain people or objects for the worship or service to God. And we are to be sanctified. We're to be sanctified people. We're to be a holy people. Set apart from the world to worship and serve the living God. Never forget that, brothers and sisters. That's the meaning for us. We are to be holy. That is, not only are we to lead holy and pure lives, but we are also to separate ourselves from the lust expressed by the world. That's why Peter uh, says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, so you be holy in all your contact, conduct. For Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And then Peter goes on to say, in the next chapter, First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. What does he mean by sojourners and pilgrims? It means this world is this uh, physical life that we enjoy here in the present world here and now. It's only temporary. Now, we used to sing a song when I was in... Uh, uh, you know, growing up, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. How many of you have heard that song? We used to sing it a lot, you know, when I was uh, back then. So that's what it means to be sojourners and pilgrims. The writer of Hebrews also says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14... Pursue peace with all men and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We're to pursue this separateness, this set-apartedness, if you will. Now, I've uh, jotted down some thoughts that I had on holiness. Holiness or purity and being separate from the world along with its lust and way of thinking is not an option. 
You may think that living a holy life is an option. It's not an option for the Christian. You are to live a holy life, a life set apart for God. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Belial is another word for uh, Satan. Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? By the way, that uh, uh, believer with unbeliever, that's exactly why you should never marry a non-Christian. You're going to select a mate, make sure that he or she is a believer him or herself. For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be to you a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now, I remember, uh, uh, who's seen that, that movie Witness? It's an old movie. It was made back in 1985, starring Harrison Ford, where he goes, he's a police officer, and he goes and lives among the Amish. And the Amish carry that bee separate to an extreme, and they settle down in their own communities. And they quote this scripture. In fact, that scripture was quoted right there in, uh, once in, in the uh, movie. Now, that's to an extreme because we are not supposed to leave the world, brothers and sisters, that is, leave it behind and leave completely separate from them. But it's more, when it talks about be separate, it's talking about a mentality. You don't follow the dictates of the world and its lust anymore because you live this holy life. You know, when you come down to it, uh, brothers and sisters, if... Uh, if uh, we actually went and separated ourselves like the Amish did, who's going to tell them about Jesus? That's, so it totally, runs totally contrary to the command of God, which is to go into all the world and preach the gospel. From Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. These people will never hear about Jesus unless we preach it to them. Okay? Thought number two. Failure to leave the world and its lust will be a result in our being judged with her. John wrote in uh, Revelation chapter 18 verse 4. This is after the judgment of the great whore of Babylon. She's described in the prior chapter, Revelation chapter 17. Talks about the, the great whore of Babylon being judged. And in one hour she's wiped out. You read about that in uh, Revelation chapter 18. Verse 4 there, uh, we're told this. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, 
my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. Now, who's this great whore of Babylon? Well, nobody really knows, but it seems to be some kind of false religious system energized by the spirit behind the world. And many have interpreted, or I believe misinterpreted, to believe that the great whore of Babylon is the Roman Catholic Church. In the middle of the 19th century, back in the... Uh, 1853, there was a Presbyterian theologian by the name of Alexander Hislop who wrote a book called The Two Babylons, where he equated the Roman Catholic Church to be a, a revival of the ancient pagan religious practices back in uh, ancient Babylon. I don't really believe that. I think things have changed an awful lot. You know, when Hislop wrote that, that was almost 200 years ago, you know, uh, uh, the Roman Catholic Church was a far cry from what it is today. But I see it more as being a revival of these pagan religions, which I spent five Sundays, you remember I was talking about that uh, book, The Return of the Gods? And I said, this has been revived in the current woke religion, quote, unquote. Actually, I see them more as being asleep. Okay? So, it's like uh, back when I was growing up in high school, they used to talk about the new morality. And somebody once said that the new, immoral, uh, the new morality is nothing but uh, uh, the old immorality in a revived form. Okay, now just quickly now I'm going to include three more thoughts that I, uh, about uh, holiness. Number three is Christians, God expects us to live a holy lifestyle. Now that only includes abstaining from those worldly lusts, but also there are positive aspects to living a holy life. So holy living is a matter of do's as well as a matter of don'ts. Number four, it is impossible for unregenerate people in the world to be able to live this sort of holy lifestyle. The demands that are put on them are so great that they cannot follow them. It's only when Jesus is living in our heart, brothers and sisters, that we can hope to live this holy lifestyle. Jesus dwells in our heart through the person of the Holy Spirit. And if you're a born-again Christian, the Holy Spirit is now living in your heart. Amen? Hallelujah. The fifth thing, and I'm going to conclude with this. I think the greatest moral treatise ever uttered by man or, and written down was the sermon, what's called the Sermon on the Mount. Who gave the Sermon on the Mount? The Lord Jesus Christ himself. You read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. Okay, there's about a hundred verses there. I would suggest that you read it. Although you've probably heard a lot of it referred to many times, even if you haven't read it in the past. So read it. 
And far from being the generalities expressed by uh, Peter, where he said, Be holy, for I am holy. Or the writer of Hebrews, Follow peace with all men, and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. The Sermon on the Mount gets down to the very specifics. Now I'm going to finish up here soon. But I want to give you just a few thoughts about the Sermon on the Mount. Let's see, uh, the Sermon on the Mount is uh, three chapters. So it's going to take a long time for me to go through uh, three chapters today. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm going to go through just a few opening uh, verses there and then, then we'll be finished. First of all, the Sermon on the Mount is not for everyone. How many of you ever thought about that? It's not for everybody. It's only for the Christian. For opening uh, verses of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, verses 1 through and 2 in uh, Matthew chapter 5. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain... And when he was seated at he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened up his mouth and taught them, saying, Who's the them there? Is he teaching the multitudes? No, he the way that it's worded, the way I read it, he's just teaching his disciples. Uh, so um, the multitudes that is at least the ones that were within within earshot were just eavesdropping on what Jesus was telling his disciples. And that's why the Sermon on the Mount is not for everyone. Therefore, don't expect the people of the world to follow the dictates here. I used to work at uh, with this industrial company and there was a man there... Uh, uh, he, even though he was in his, uh, I think he, he was uh, about 50 or so, he still hung out with this kind of motorcycle gang. So much so that somebody gave him the nickname of uh, Easy Rider. Or we called him ER for short. And ER was a really nice guy. I really liked him a lot. Everybody did. But ER knew that I was a Christian. And so... He liked to needle me about that. And he was always trying to get me to tell him what a big sinner he was. And so uh, uh, he, he was talking about, the, you, you know, the, the one aspect. In fact, I'm going to go about the, in detail about this a couple of weeks from now. Uh, about, uh, you know, how it's, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that if a man looks upon a woman to lust after her, uh, in a, you know, he's committed adultery. In his heart. And so E.R. says to me, see, right there, says, I might as well go on ahead and do it, you know, because, you know, if I have this lust in my heart, it's tantamount to performing the act itself. So he, he was having fun with me. But, uh, you know, I, I wish I could talk to him now and I would tell him, look, E.R., you know, I can't get you to live by the same standards that I am. You're not a Christian. I am. You know, and that's for me, you know, to, to tell me, you know, that uh, uh, I need to live this holy and pure life. 
So the bottom line is, brothers and sisters, we can't expect the world to be held to the same standard that we as Christians are. Because these people can't help themselves. You know that? They don't have Jesus in their heart. They don't have the convicting power of the Holy Spirit uh, telling them that. Okay? Now, who then is the Sermon on the Mount for? Okay, well the first two Beatitudes tell us that. What are the Beatitudes? You know, uh, starting in verse 3 and going through verse 11, you know, are the nine Beatitudes. Where Jesus said, blessed are those. What does blessed mean there? It means, oh, how happy, oh, how joyous are people that do these things. Okay? Now, the first two of these Beatitudes give us a clue about who the Sermon on the Mount is for. You know, somebody once said that the Beatitudes are just that. They are Beatitudes, not do attitudes. Why is that significant? Because it is dealing with what you are in your heart. Because what you are in your heart will be a natural outflow to what you say and do. Some people, you know, looked at uh, and told me, well, you know, uh, you know I, I need to obey the law. And the problem is, New Testament law, you know, we're not under Old Testament law, but New Testament law is a thousand times harder to keep. Because Old Testament law, for the most part, dealt with the outward actions of people. Whereas New Testament law is expressed by in the Sermon on the Mount, deals with the inward thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So, it's a beatitude. It's what you are. And then what you do and say will be a natural outflow from that. What does the first beatitude say? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does this mean? Do you ever think about that? What's it mean, poor in spirit? Here's a reality check, brothers and sisters. We're all poor in spirit. Everybody say that. I am poor in spirit. That is, I am spiritually poor. And the problem is, most people never realize that. You know, many folks think that when you are, uh, that, that they are actually spiritually rich. And they try to justify themselves on their good works. So they're saying, in effect, that they are spiritually rich. And they can make it on their own. You know, these are people like the Pharisee. I've, I've told you before about that, uh, the story, the parable Jesus taught about the Pharisee and the tax collector. Found in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. The Pharisee looks to himself. He trusted in his own righteousness. And he said, I think I'm God, not, not like these other people, especially like this tax collector. He's such a sinner. And he tried to justify himself on the basis of his works. Now, when people have that attitude, you know what they've done? Is they've 
smacked right into that brick wall of self-righteousness. And the only way to achieve a right relationship with God and obtain eternal life is to first realize that you are spiritually poor. You're not only spiritually poor, you know what? You're spiritually bankrupt. You can't make it on your own. And you've got to come to the place where you realize that. On the contrary, though, the tax collector in there, he didn't try, he knew what a sinner he was. He didn't try to justify himself on his own self-righteousness. Instead, he just beat on his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's what exactly what the first beatitude talks about. Blessed are they who realize that they are spiritually poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the start. Okay, last verse here I'm going to cover. Second beatitude. Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Who are these people that are described as those who mourn? Some people think it's to maybe to people who have lost somebody that's near and dear to them. And they're mourning their loss. And they take it to be a promise that God is going to comfort them in the midst of their mourning. Well, that's probably true. God will comfort you. You lose somebody close to you, God will comfort you. You just got to seek comfort from Him. And especially don't get embittered towards God because He took that person away from you. Other people think that maybe it's mourning something traumatic that just happened to them. Maybe they suffered a divorce or maybe financial ruin or maybe a natural disaster like a hurricane or a uh, tornado or maybe an earthquake that wiped out all of their earthly possessions. You know, they're mourning for that. But that's not exactly, I think, what Jesus is getting at right here. Keep in mind the context of the passage. Jesus had just spoken about those that realized that they were spiritually poor, that they were spiritually bankrupt, and they acknowledged it. So it's just natural that the second beatitude would follow. And that is, it's speaking of those who mourn their sins. And they recognize that these sins have offended a holy and righteous God. And you know what this is called, brothers and sisters? It's called godly sorrow. Last scripture I'm going to share with you and then I'm done. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 9 through 10. Now I rejoice that you were made sorry. He's writing to the Corinthians. He wrote another you know, uh, uh, letter 
previous, you know, the first Corinthians, where he really gave them a tongue lashing because they were, had a number of problems within their church. So he, that's what he's talking about. I rejoice now. I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So you've got a contrast of two different kinds of sorrow. You've got godly sorrow, which does what? Leads to repentance. And then you've got the sorrow of the world. The godly sorrow brings the repentance. You know, you read about that classic passage. Uh, uh, you know, be aware of it. Psalm 51. David sinned grievously against God. Committed adultery with a woman. Then later had her husband killed. And then he married her. And he found himself under God's judgment because of that. But he had godly sorrow, and he outlines it in that psalm. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done evil in uh, your sight. He, David had godly sorrow, and God forgave him. Now the consequences for that sin remained, you know, and he would experience them later on. First with the death of the child that he had been conceived through his adulterous affair, and then later on when his own son rebelled against him. But he had godly sorrow. The sorrow of the world, on the other hand, is not sorrow that one has done wrong, but that the person that has done wrong has been caught. And now he or she is going to have to suffer the consequences. Okay? Now, let me give you a quick example of that, and then I'm finished here. Okay? Uh, I cite the case of Simon Magus, found in Acts chapter 8, verses 18 through uh, uh, 20, uh, 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 24. Chapter, uh, Acts chapter 18, verses uh, 18 through 24. And when Simon, this is Simon Magus, saw... That through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. You know, I use this as a, a demonstration that probably, even though Acts chapter 8 doesn't mention speaking in other tongues as the initial evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it probably was, it's kind of implied here. There had to be some kind of visible sign that Simon Magus uh, saw there. And now he offers them money. He says right here, uh, saying, Give me also this power that on whomsoever I lay my hands, he may receive the Holy Spirit. So he wanted a gift. He's going to you know, give money to, to get it. Why? Because he probably figured he could profit by it too. Say, well, I'll lay my hands on you. You get baptized in the Holy Spirit. You give me money to lay my hands uh, on you. And... Peter, but Peter, verse 20, but Peter said unto him, your money perish with you. That's 
you know, King James kind of sanitizes it right there. Peter literally told him, the hell with you and your money. You know, because you have thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. You have neither part nor lot in this manner, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart might be forgiven you. For I perceive you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Now notice uh, uh, Simon's response here. This is sorrow of the world to a T. Verse 24. Then answered Simon and said, Pray ye to the Lord for me that none of these things which you have spoken come upon me. Pray that, you know, I won't suffer this judgment. He didn't say anything. You're right, Peter. You know, uh, my heart is not right with God. I should not have, you know, uh, asked you to, to, you know, for purchasing the gift of the Holy Spirit with money. You know, I was wrong. I, I accept that. You know, that's godly sorrow. But he didn't say that. What did he do? He said, pray that this judgment, you know, that you're telling me won't fall upon me. And that's true of people in the world. You know, the prisons are full of people like that. Right? They're sorry they did what they did because they have to suffer the consequences. Not because they offended society and offended God. They have the worldly sorrow because they have to suffer the consequences. Okay, so I'm going to stop right there. I'm going to pick up 